0: up your hearts. God, it is a great joy this morning to welcome you to Marsh Chapel, whether you are here in person, listening live over the radio at 90.9 WBUR or over internet signals at WBUR.org, or listening later to the podcast at BU.EDU slash chapel. We welcome to the pulpit today Elizabeth Douglas, our chapel associate for LGBTQ and UCC ministry, Our dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, sends his greetings as he is preaching at Harvard Memorial Church this week, and we look forward to his return next Sunday. Now let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
1: Of the earth, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you, the Holy Spirit, lives and reigns. One God, now and forever. Amen.
0: As we please be seated, as we gather in this Gothic nave in awe and reverence, we come seeking to know God, that in the light of one who knows us most deeply, we might come to know ourselves. That is to say, we come seeking our vocation, that which we are called to be and do in the world. We would catch a glimpse of a vision of that way of being to which we are invited out of an infinity of paths and possibilities. But how can we see, how can we know, if our vision is clouded and we deceive ourselves? As we pray in silence during the singing of the Kyrie, Let us confess our wrongdoings and missteps and offer them to God in whose light we may see light. The good news of Jesus Christ for us today is that there is more love in God than sin in us. In the God who is trustworthy and true, let us walk in humility and gratitude the path to which the Spirit calls us. When we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thanks Thanks be to God.
2: lesson from the prophet Isaiah chapter 49 verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom, I am, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of, my, of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus said the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers, King shall see and stand up. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thanks, sorry, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
3: Join me in reading responsibly from Psalm 40 with the Antiphon. I waited patiently for the Lord, who inclined his head to me and heard my cry. The Lord drew me up from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, set my feet firmly upon a rock, making my steps secure. The Lord put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and be in awe, and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. O Lord my God, you have multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin you have not required. Then I said, Lo, I come. In the roll of the book it is written for me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Lo, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hid your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and faithfulness from the great congregation. O Lord, do not withhold your trust from me. Let your steadfast love and faithfulness ever preserve me. Please rise for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel.
1: Jesus Christ, according to St. John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with, the, with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The, the Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Christ.
4: I recently read a column in the opinion pages of the New York Times titled Climate of Hate. In light of the recent shootings in Arizona, which resulted in the deaths of six people and the critical injury of Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, columnist Paul Krugman offered his thoughts on some of the causes of this horrific act of violence. His concern over the attitudes and rhetoric between opposing parties is valid. The differences of the American people are only making a greater divide instead of making us stronger. He said, The point is that there's room in a democracy for people who ridicule and denounce those who disagree with them. There isn't any place for eliminationist rhetoric, for suggestions that those on the other side of a debate must be removed from that debate by whatever means necessary. And on this day, before a holiday commemorating Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, life, and legacy, I wonder how far we've come in the last 50 years. King lived through a climate of hate. No stranger to eliminationist rhetoric, he fought back against those opposed to his message, not with violence, but with peaceful protests. His words proved to be a valuable asset and a mighty weapon, but his actions also spoke volumes or perhaps those actions he chose not to resort to. Let's not mistake that King was an ordinary man. I mean ordinary in the sense that he lived and breathed as a human being, conversed with friends, worked, studied, and had a family. In that regard, he lived like many of us do today. What made King extraordinary were the choices he made, not for the benefit of himself, but for the well-being of others. He recognized his role as leader, teacher, and motivator, and he followed his calling, seeking out justice by whatever loving means necessary. Our reading from Isaiah today reflects a tumultuous time for the Israelites in which they were exiles in a foreign land in need of consolation and revitalization. A thematic element to this portion of what is referred to as 2nd Isaiah includes a new exodus out of exile reminiscent of the early Israelites under the leadership of Moses. In Isaiah, the Israelites once again find themselves in need of a leader, one called by God to encourage them to rise up, remember their creator, and reach out to those in need. The prophet offered a message of hope and revival to a downtrodden and scattered nation. What we read today is a beautiful example of what it means to be called by God to live as proof that there's more to this captive and oppressive life. Isaiah outlines three tenets to being called by God. First, recognition that we are all indeed called to be sons and daughters of God, diversely created and equally valued. Second, the restoration of those communities and individuals around us that have trouble seeing and knowing their worth in the midst of chaos and hatred. And third, revelation meaning we are all messengers of the gospel through our actions and our words, so much so that the revelation of God's love and justice is evident in us and shines forth brightly from us through the darkness to the ends of the earth. The Israelites needed a wake-up call, someone to help them recognize their worth and potential so they could rise up as people loved and called by God and ultimately shift their focus from inward to outward, to help and lift up others. Working at the university, I have the opportunity to watch students move up and down Commonwealth Avenue, converse over dinner in the GSU, bask in the sun on Marsh Plaza, and rehash their lessons from classes at Espresso Royale Cafe just across the street. There's an excitement present that I recognize from my own past. Just starting out on their own, expanding their minds and experiencing new things they see their lives as full of possibilities. Questions arise like, who am I, and what am I looking for? The options are endless. They could take on the world, make real changes, and beat the odds. I felt this way when I was in college, and I still catch glimpses of it from time to time. An example of this today at Boston University can be found in BU Today's story on this year's MLK celebrations, in which a student asked How can we be great? What an honest and inviting question, spurring creativity and action. Some may call this naive, the belief that dreams do come true and visions for the betterment of human life can be lived out. I call this wonderful, but often too short-lived. Cold, hard reality eventually sets in. Reality that change is hard, revival is difficult, and revelation is often an empty promise or offered only for a select few. Living out our true passions and calling, take us a backseat to the daily demands of routine life. And that youthful enthusiasm buries itself deep inside of us, just waiting to be woken up once again. When asked, what are you looking for? Or better phrased, what are you seeking? Our gospel reading today states the disciples, as clueless as ever, answered Jesus' question with a question. Teacher, where are you staying? In true comedic fashion, when alerted to the fact by John the Baptist that they were standing in the midst of the Lamb of God, they chose not to bow or grovel. Instead, they seemed to only ask for Jesus's mailing address. I think at first glance, it's easy to interpret our reading this way. The disciples have a reputation for not always catching on to what Jesus said or meant during his human life on earth. The underlying message of the parables was usually lost to the disciples, and they always asked questions that warranted a simple answer. But there's more to be said about the disciples' response. From their question, where are you staying, the translation of the word stay from the Greek word meno may be better phrased as to abide, remain, or continue, the same word John the Baptist used earlier in our reading to describe the Spirit from heaven remaining on Jesus after his baptism. It hinges on the notion of permanence or constancy. It implies an inner dwelling, a more eternal home, instead of a transitory living place. Perhaps the disciples answered Jesus' question the most beautiful and brilliant way of all. They weren't looking for Jesus' address on a map. No, they desired the presence of Jesus, the eternal life and love to be ever alive with them and through them. With self-abandon and eager anticipation to change the world, They understood their calling from Jesus to come and see where to find the true meaning of the gospel and how to live it out. In the same model of Isaiah, the disciples shift from recognition to restoration and even further towards making the great revelation known to all people, inward to outward, from ourselves to helping those around us, from Jesus as human to the eternal loving presence of Christ within each one of us. Martin Luther King Jr. could have never known the impact he would have on the country and its history. What was he seeking? He was seeking ways to improve the well-being of all U.S. citizens, regardless of race. He was seeking God's presence in the midst of chaos and hatred. He was seeking the meaning of the gospel in everyday life for African Americans. And he was seeking the words and actions to bring justice to a very unjust country and society. He wanted nothing more than to take others with him to walk along the road together, to find that place where Jesus lived and breathed, ate and slept. And he did exactly that, because Jesus was a part of him deep inside. Jesus could be found in King's presence. In this climate of hate, we have the choice to be extremists, as King once noted. Extremists of hate or love. King said, perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. Modeling Jesus' extremist actions and words full of love, goodness, and truth, we all have the potential to seek these aspects creatively in ways relevant to the needs of our own society in 2011, if we're willing to heed the call. Perhaps one of the most prevalent needs across the political divides and religious arrays, reaching beyond the borders of our country throughout the entire world, is the acceptance and full inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender folk as human beings, deserving the same dignity and respect as others. As Secretary of State Hillary Clinton recently said, and has stated in the past, gay rights are human rights, and human rights are gay rights. I was recently asked by a BU Today journalist, is King's message still relevant today? I didn't hesitate to answer absolutely. He modeled how we should be living each and every day, messengers of the gospel, seekers of justice, reminders of beauty and love. If we feel that King's message is losing relevance, then it's our own fault. The biblical message of righteousness, love, and freedom for all people is not time or culturally specific. And now discrimination and oppression run rampant, and they must be stopped. As King noted, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We have a lot of work to do. We celebrate days like King's birthday because we too easily forget the injustices of the past and the ways to overcome them. We are forgetful people. The purpose of days like today are to remember, to wake us up and call us into consciousness. Too often we sleepwalk through life, not fully aware of our true potential or the beauty in those who surround us each and every day. We forget our worth and our capabilities. We forget what we're seeking and where to find it. Like the Israelites in Isaiah, we too need to be reminded of our calling, our abilities to change the world for good, and our need to seek justice. We can learn from the students surrounding us, from their hopes and aspirations, from their work with various causes for goodness. The students I work with each week are daily reminders of the importance of following a calling and seeking out the love of Jesus. They strive for the inclusion of LGBT people in all aspects of life, and I know they won't stop until changes are made and hatred is overcome. And these students face discrimination and hatred in ways that many of us can't begin to comprehend. Jokes are made, punches are thrown, and doors are closed simply because of an aspect to the intricate and complex weavings of their inmost being. I know this message too well. Growing up all I ever wanted to do was work for God. As a child, my mother called me the little evangelist because of my excitement and love for God that I felt necessary to share with all my friends. A little older and I started to realize that fire inside for the gospel might mean something. And when I shared my thoughts to those in authority over me, I was pushed aside because of my gender. Women can't be ministers, it says so in the Bible. Not swayed, I left that tradition in search of a place I could express my desire to serve God as a woman. I was then pushed aside again, this time because of my sexual orientation. I started to doubt myself and my calling and sought out other avenues of work, but nothing could satisfy my thirst like the ministry. After being told I was wrong for so long, I started to believe it, though, and I started to forget what truly made me feel alive. People often approach me and ask, after all you've been through and seen in the church, why do you bother to stay? Why not just leave? I look at them with a puzzled glance and I say, how could I leave? There have certainly been times where I've wanted to walk away, forget it all, and turn my back on people who disregard so much of the gospel message. But in those times, I don't get very far before a tug at my heart starts. Many of you know to what I'm referring. It starts out in a small, quiet way, doesn't it? a gentle nudge, or a quick tinge. It then becomes a little stronger, and by the end, there's no question someone is trying to get your attention. You have two options in that moment. Turn around and accept the difficulty and challenges of being chosen by God, or to keep walking, pushing aside the feelings until you're numb and you forget who you are and what it was you were seeking. Church leaders in King's time claimed the social concerns of the day, such as segregation and deeply embedded racism, did not concern the Bible or the gospel. Some today would say the same of LGBT social issues, but I completely disagree. The gospel is not boxed in, hidden in a corner, and turned to for only seemingly religious issues. When Jesus encouraged the disciples to come and see, his invitation didn't stop with those two men in the beginning of John. It expanded and grew to all people throughout all time. When social concerns reflect oppression of people and groups of people and neglect human rights, the gospel must be concerned. We must be concerned if we call ourselves followers of Christ and bearers of the good news. Righteousness must always be sought out and acted upon. It's time to rise up to move past our differences and put forth our creative energy towards the well-being of all people instead of arguing over who's allowed the freedom of the gospel and who's not. There is no good found in eliminationist rhetoric. This kind of speech is hate-filled instead of love-filled. The bullying and suicides of young lesbian and gay children and teens are quickly becoming an epidemic, and we must find a cure. And through it all, we must remember how far we've come, because progress has been made. We remember Harvey Milk, the first openly gay man elected to public office, who also lost his life due to extremists of hate, those seeking violence instead of the loving and inclusive example of Jesus. Diversity should be celebrated. After all, aren't we all living and breathing because of the same creator? Dean Hill uses the phrase, the expansion of the circle of human freedom, King helped this expansion, and I hope today we all work to expand the circle until it encompasses all people. Living a life worthy of the gospel is risky business. History proves that to us. It's often easier to blend in than to stand out. It's easier to keep quiet than cause a commotion. But life through Christ isn't about keeping quiet. Like Isaiah said, we are called to speak up. And like Jesus once said in the Gospel of Matthew, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. The time is ripe, my friends, to let that light shine brightly. Let us remember the triumphs and the mistakes from the past so that we may celebrate progress and learn not to fall back on actions that inhibit freedom and equality. Let us humble ourselves amongst one another as we recognize the eternal presence of Jesus throughout all creation and humanity. Let us each bring our own gifts and passions to the table so that we may learn how to creatively work through our differences instead of resorting to hateful actions and words. Let us be open to the quiet yet firm voice of God nudging us to follow our calling as justice seekers and messengers of hope and the good news. Perhaps King described living out the gospel and seeking justice best when he said, I choose to identify with the underprivileged. I choose to identify with the poor. I choose to give my life for the hungry. I choose to give my life for those who have been left out of the sunlight of opportunity. I choose to live for those who find themselves seeing life as a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. This is the way I'm going. If it means suffering a little bit, I'm going that way. If it means sacrificing, I'm going that way. If it means dying for them, I'm going that way because I heard a voice saying, do something for others. Amen.
0: As we turn our hearts to prayer, I would invite you to assume an attitude and posture of prayer according to your tradition. You may stand, remain seated, kneel, or come to the communion rail. As we sing our call to prayer, lead me, Lord. today are guided by that great Boston University alumnus himself, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., in an excerpt from his letter from the Birmingham jail to his fellow clergymen. Let us pray. There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the moors of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on, in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch-defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structures of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century or even the 21st. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the Church has turned into outright disgust. Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual Church, the Church within the Church, as the true ecclesia and the hope of the world. But again I am thankful to God that some noble souls from the ranks of organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzing chains of conformity and joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. They have left their secure congregations and walked the streets of Albany, Georgia with us. They have gone down the highways of the South on torturous rides for freedom. Yes, they have gone to jail with us. Some have been dismissed from their churches, have lost the support of their bishops and fellow ministers. But they have acted in the faith that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. I hope the Church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour, but even if the Church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation, because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. And now, as Dr. King has guided our corporate prayers, we join together under the leadership of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. The peace of the Lord be always with you. We thank our chapel associate for LGBTQ and UCC ministry, Liz Douglas, for sharing the word today and for preaching a testament of hope. We would note that the chapel offices will be closed tomorrow in recognition of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, but we do hope that you will join us at 1 p.m. at Metcalf Hall in the George Sherman Union here at Boston University for the annual Boston University Martin Luther King Day celebration. We are also pleased to announce this morning that Marsh Chapel is the recipient of a grant from the Fund for Theological Education to host three undergraduates in in pastoral internships uh, beginning this spring and continuing for a further year next uh, next academic year. If you are an undergraduate or know an undergraduate who is discerning a call to ministry and would benefit from participating in such a program, please do be in touch with me either after the service or through the chapel offices during the week. We hope you will keep an eye to the chapel website for upcoming services and activities. Our regular services and activities begin again this coming week at the start of term. Also available on the chapel website, bu.edu chapel is the opportunity for online giving. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
4: call for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream to refresh and to restore creation. Bless and multiply these our offerings that we who give them and those who receive them may be strengthened and encouraged in our lives of faith and action. Through your creativity in diversity and unity, In the name and example of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the power of your presence and power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Now, friends, love and serve each other in the name of the faithful God who calls us to be God's people. May God's Holy Spirit lead you, may God's strength protect you, and may God's peace be with you. Amen.